right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's happening? I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson is out today. If you've been listening to the show the past couple of days, you would have noticed that uh, he has been struggling with a little bit of uh, losing his voice. And so he is taking a day off to hopefully rest up his voice and hopefully he'll be back tomorrow. So instead, we're going to rebrand the show today. Nick Chalk Sports Talk coming to you live on KLWN. That's right. Rebranding the show. Nick Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Springer. Today on Nick Chalk Sports Talk, we're going to talk about some KU basketball. Uh, give a little update on the Kansas football recruiting situation on the transfer portal. They sent out an update earlier today. David Lesky of Inside the Crown is going to join us at 3.40, so in about 35 minutes or so, to talk about the Royals. Yes, the Royals have made a couple of uh, interesting trades and some interesting acquisitions. And, you know, I think we're, I don't know the exact date, but I think we're getting close to pitchers and catchers reporting, probably still like a month out, I think. I don't I don't actually know the exact date. So we'll have David, David on to give us a little update on some of the offseason moves that the Royals have made. In the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to have a lot of Chiefs talk. Andy Reid, we got some audio from him uh, before the AFC Championship game. And I want to talk about Patrick Mahomes and what he's done in his, in his four AFC Championship games that he's played in. And then at 4.40, later on in the show, hey, what's going on over there? Patrick Reid versus Rory McIlroy. Stay tuned for that. And in the 5 o'clock hour, some Big 12 basketball and KU talk as well. So that's a look at what we've got going on for today's show. Four NFL teams, two conference championship games, and only a few more shots to win big on the playoffs with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Counting down to Super Bowl 57, new customers can bet just $5 and get 200 in free bets instantly. Not a new customer? You can feel the conference championship thrills with stepped-up same-game parlays. Take your shot at even bigger at an even bigger NFL payout and boost your winnings with each leg. You add up to 100%. And before the Chiefs game... I told Derek, I sat in this very chair right here on Friday, and I said, hey, Travis Kelsey, two tuds. And we put it on. We, we, we created our own little parlay, and we put it on there. And look what happened. Travis Kelsey came through, two touchdowns for my guy uh, on Sunday. So start looking at uh, building your parlays, same-game parlays for the Chiefs game. It should be an exciting game. And be sure to download the DraftKings Sports app and use, use code KLWN. New customers can bet just $5 on the conference championships and get 200 in free bets instantly. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code KLWN. Gambling problem? Getting help is your best bet. Call 800-522-4700. 21 and older, physically present in Kansas. Bonus issued as free bets. One boost per eligible game. Opt-in required. 10-plus leg required for 100% boost. Deposit parlay and wagering restrictions apply. Eligibility in terms of DraftKings at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms on behalf of the Boot Hill Casino and Resort. So Kansas basketball drops their third consecutive game Monday night against Baylor, and we saw Grady Dick 
sort of get himself out of the little mini slump that he was in. Kevin McCuller ended the game with 14 points. His, his, his box score looked pretty good, but he still had some moments where he was struggling, missed a couple open threes, got blocked a couple times. But I want to talk about the guard situation for Kansas and what they're getting out of their guards. Dewan Harris, we consistently hail him as maybe the most important player on the floor for Kansas, the most consistent player, the, the guy that is sort of the, the puppeteer running everything for Kansas. But he has really, really been struggling lately in terms of scoring. And I want to be clear. Dewan Harris does not need to be your third score. He doesn't even need to be your fourth score. But he, he needs to be at least a threat to score, either from the perimeter or on the drive. And I know Derek talked about it yesterday, but on the opening play of the game against Baylor, Dewan Harris drives, and he's, he's got an open lane straight to the rim, and instead he tries to, to dish it off to Jalen Wilson, surrounded by three Baylor Bears, and it results in a turnover to start the game. And that was just kind of a theme of the game for, for Dewan Harris uh, against Baylor. Against Baylor specifically, Dewan was 1 of 5 from the floor, 0 of 1 from 3. He had just one rebound, two total points, four assists, but also four turnovers in the game for Dewan along with one steal. So there's no question that Dewan is is the leader of the offense. He's the guy that gets everything going, but these are his last four games, his stat line from the last four games. In his last four games, he is 2 of 18 from the floor, 1 of 8 from 3, 5 points, 13 turnovers. That that's I mean that's just not going to get it done. That's 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 not being a threat. That's just being almost 4 on 5 practically on offense. And when Dewan played 39 minutes, rewind back to the Iowa State game. Dewan played 39 minutes in that game and didn't score. And after the game, I basically tried to suggest that I think that's an issue. I thought it was an issue then. I think it's an issue now. And off the win, I think it kind of got overlooked because Kansas did ultimately win that game. But now with Kansas really struggling on offense, that idea is popping back up again of, listen, you need you don't necessarily need a ton of production from a guy like Dewan Harris, from a guy like Bobby Pettiford. But they need to be at least offensive threats to score. And that has not been the case. Now, Dewan for the season is still shooting 42% from three, even though he's one for eight from three in his last four games. And that's because, remember, he started conference play shooting 71% from three. Well, we thought that that was an aberration, and it turns out it was, because now we've got, now we're back to one for eight in his last four. And that's, that's a problem. And, and again, I, I, I really can't emphasize enough. Well, in, in, in this discussion, it's not like we're. It's not like I'm saying, Dewan Harris needs to be your second leading scorer. Dewan Harris needs to be your third leading scorer. He doesn't. He doesn't have to be any of that. <clears throat> but the reality of the situation is, with Kansas struggling to score, when you look at Kevin McCuller and the rough that he's been in, and now KJ has been really disengaged from the offense in the past few games. If one of those guys isn't contributing, it's clear that that puts too much pressure on Grady and Jalen to carry the offense. You want evidence of that? How about three straight L's? That's pretty clear evidence to me. <laughs> I mean, and, I mean, that's two games where Grady wasn't scoring either, right? Like, if Grady and Jalen are, are the two guys trying to carry the offense, it, it's clearly not enough. It's clearly not enough. Because if it was, they would have maybe scraped out a win of their, of their, out of their last three games. 
So you really just need Dewan Harris to be a little bit more of a threat. Not even the third or fourth option, but he just needs to be a guy that you can't leave wide open on the perimeter. And remember, when he was shooting with confidence to start conference play and he was hitting them, it, it, it was great. It worked great, right? But that appears to have been a flash in the plan or a blip in what is turning out to be someone who is just not that level of scorer from three. And then you've got the same deal with Bobby. The same deal with Bobby when he comes off the bench. It's it's just uh, it's so tough. And Bobby has been really equally kind of a, a handicap on offense. He attempted one three-point shot against Baylor and missed it. And he did not record rebound, did not have an assist, had one turnover, and no steals. So in six minutes, he was 0 for 1 with one turnover and did nothing else. So it's just that that is just not that is just not working right now. And again, it's it's one of those things where, well, if Kevin's playing really well and KJ's playing really well, then I think you can kind of just wash over this and be like, meh, yeah, the one played 39 minutes, the one played 38 minutes, didn't score, nah, no big deal. But it is still, to me, an underlying problem that you need your point guard to be some kind of a threat, some kind of a threat offensively. Otherwise, you're playing four on five. And we've seen Bill Self experiment with Dewan and Bobby on the floor at the same time. I don't think you can continue to do that because then you're almost playing three on five. I mean, that's how rough it is, really. And this is where I think Joe Yesifu comes into play as the guy you have to look at. We've, we discussed we discussed a lot in the preseason and even early in the season of the rotation is probably going to be your starting five, Bobby, one of the bigs, or maybe two of the bigs, and then probably either Joe or MJ. That gets you to about seven, eight. That gets you to eight guys, eight, nine guys if you're using two bigs. And... The idea being, the idea of that thought is Joe slash MJ is your score off the bench who comes in and is kind of your shot in the arm score. And obviously MJ hasn't even really been able to get on the floor at all, hardly. So it doesn't seem like it's going to be coming from him, really, at this point. So then you turn to Joe. And Joe is a guy that, again, at Drake, he showed that he was a scorer. And for whatever reason, it just hasn't quite played out in that same manner at Kansas, for whatever reason. I don't know if it's just a confidence issue, if it's just a comfortability issue with Joe. But I think now you have to start considering Joe as the better compliment than Bobby as as a guard off the bench. So Bobby from the floor this season is 15 of 24 which is 57% from the floor. But you think he's put up 24 shots in, what, 19 games? So he's getting up barely over one shot a game at this point. So, you know, 57%. Oh, 20 games, actually. So, yeah, barely barely over one shot per game. Joe is 25 to 68 from the floor, 37%. But, again, that that doesn't to me, that doesn't necessarily full tell the full story, which is that, 
it's obvious when you're watching the game that when Joe has the ball in his hands, he is a much, much more significant scoring threat than when Bobby has the ball in his hands. Period. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody can really dispute that when you watch the games. And on a team that kind of needs more shooting besides, besides Grady and Jalen when he's hot, it feels like that should be Joe. Now, he's only shooting 29% from three right now, 11, 11, from thir- 11 for 38 for the season. Bobby has just attempted Bobby has attempted just six threes this season, so that's clearly not his game. So that's that's to me where you look at and say, and you have to kind of start to flirt with the idea of, okay, maybe, you know, maybe Joe needs to get more run. And in fact, even Bill Self talked about this uh, on Hawk Talk last night and suggested that that Joe has the potential to be that guy. That score that uh, that six man coming off the bench that gives that gives your offense that scoring punch that they need because at this stage of the season I don't think it's coming from I, oh I know it's not coming from Bobby it's not going to come consistently from Dewan I think you are going to get I think you are probably still going to get some games where Dewan does feel confident and is able to give you 10 12 14 points that's but that I don't think that's going to be consistent it's clearly not MJ at this point. So that leaves you with Joe. So Joe maybe is the key to elevating this team from a from a standpoint of a guy coming off the bench. And we talked about this yesterday, the idea that your starting five for Kansas is not going to change, probably. Well, upon some deeper thought, I mean, I think the question maybe does need to be considered of at, is there is there a point? Is there a tipping point where you would consider starting Joe instead of Kevin McCuller? I understand what Kevin McCuller does for this team on every in every other aspect of the game, but for Kansas right now, the offense is struggling and the defense is just not good enough to grind them to wins. Right now, obviously, if KJ, you know, re re discovers what he was doing earlier in, in conference play. You you hope or you figure that Kevin can get something going, but what if three, four, five games from now there hasn't been any sort of light at the end of the tunnel for Kevin and Joe starts to perform a little better? I, I don't know. I mean, the, the issue is like, I just, I just said, Joe was shooting 29% from three. So it, it's not like... I think if, if Joe at this point of the season was shooting like 35% from three, you'd probably have a, lo- a much better argument to say maybe you need to make this change. So I definitely don't think it's there right now. I definitely wouldn't consider it right now. But again, what if six games from now, it doesn't look like McCullers getting out of his, his scoring rod or getting his confidence back, and maybe Joe does start hitting some shots? I don't know. I mean, I think you have to maybe consider it at that point. Because I think that could potentially ease what has been Kansas's one of Kansas's biggest issues in this three-game uh, losing streak that they've had, which is getting off to just bad starts. Getting off to, to bad starts. Down 14 to K-State. Down double digits to Baylor. Against TCU, you started well offensively for the first four minutes or so, and then you just fell apart after that offensively, and TCU just kept scoring. 
So that's been the theme. And I again, I don't know. Maybe the solution, maybe one of the solutions to that is you consider starting Joe. I'm not saying you do it now. I'm not saying you do it the next game, the game after that. But I mean, in four or five games, I think this that might have to become a serious discussion depending on how things continue to play out. I mean, if Kansas continues to get down early in games, I think you have to consider it just just because of that. Because you need you need scoring to start a game at least. I mean, if your if your defense is going to continue to struggle the way it has for Kansas. So I think you have to look at Joe as being the guy. I think you do. Because, I again, it's not coming from Bobby. Dewan, I think, maybe on an inconsistent basis could help out. But I don't think it's reasonable at this stage of the season to expect Dewan to get you 10, 11, 12 points a game. I just don't. It's probably more in like the 7 to 8 range, if that. And obviously, he's he's now had multiple games over the last four or five games, he's had multiple games where he hasn't scored at all. Playing 38, 37, 39 minutes and not scoring. But again, I think the difference here is DeWan is definitely too valuable to be a guy that you can take off the floor in other areas, right? He's definitely too valuable. He's obviously used your point guard. He runs the offense. Kevin McCuller, on the other hand, I know he is kind of in that same line of thought of he does do so much other stuff, and he he was Kansas' leading rebounder against Baylor. I mean, he doubled anybody else in that game. McCuller had 12 rebounds. Next highest was Jalen with five. And obviously he plays great defense. But, again, I, I don't know what the tipping point is. I don't know what the tipping point is. With DeWan, it's not going to happen, right? I mean, with, with DeWan, it's out of the question. It's out of the question that he would ever be in a position like that. But with Kevin, I think you could get there. You could. Maybe. I mean, and what would it take? And I'm not saying this is an easy decision because, again, I think it would have been, I think it would be a lot easier if, if Yesifu was shooting 34, 35, 36% from He's shooting 29% from three. So it's not an easy decision from any in any stretch of the word. But, uh, again, I mean, let's say the, in the next four games, Kansas gets off to bad starts in every single game. At some point, you can't you can't keep beating your head against the wall and expect a different and expect something to change in terms of starting the games. And obviously, it's not going to be Jalen coming out. It's not going to be Grady. It's not going to be KJ probably. But it's just tough because if you want to make a change, scoring wise, there's just there's nobody consistently except for Joe. Who and to say Joe has been consistent, I think would be a bit of an overstatement. But it's a tough situation. And for Kansas, I think I think the good news for Kansas, and we'll talk more about this later in the show, the good news for Kansas is they had Kansas had a tough three game stretch. A very tough three game stretch. Then they've got Kentucky and they've got another they've got another tough three game stretch coming up. There are some other teams in the Big Twelve that have not quite had a stretch like Kansas had just had with their three losses. And they're going to have those stretches coming up where it's going to be back-to-back-to-back top 10, top 12, top 15 teams. And some of them may not fare any better than Kansas has fared in these last three. I I don't know. 
I think we could get to a point where we might see over the next couple of weeks some separation between three or four of the top teams in the Big 12 and three or four of the teams that are pretty good but not there, including Kansas, including Kansas, considering they've got Kansas State, Iowa State, and Texas coming up. All right, we're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, a little K football discussion. They announced some extra additions and kind of put a bow on their sort of transfer portal fall, their transfer portal winter recruiting situation. And at about 25 minutes from now, we'll be joined by David Lesky from Inside the Crown to talk some Royals. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Just past 3.30 here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson is out today. He's been struggling with his voice, and I think it finally gave out on him, so he's trying to rest up. He's out sick. Hopefully he'll be back tomorrow with uh, his voice as good as new. David Leslie's going to join us in about 10 minutes from inside the crown to talk about some of the recent moves that the Royals have made this offseason. Earlier today, Kansas football kind of basically put a bow on their uh, winter recruiting slash transfer portal period. And most of most of the additions we've kind of already discussed a little bit. A couple of guys that we didn't really get to. Uh, Hunter Barlow uh, was a guy that they added, a six foot three, three hundred and thirty pound lineman from Hutchinson Community College. Played in just three games this this past season for them as a sophomore. Uh, in his freshman year with Hutch, he played nine games. Uh, he's more of an interior lineman, I think. Uh, and Hutch obviously ended up going to the NJCAA national championship game. And they lost to Iowa Western. So Barlow comes in for Kansas. Another big one for Kansas was Max Mulberger, I believe is how you say it. Mulberger. Uh, six foot four, 215 pound tight end, sort of tight end wide receiver hybrid. Uh, he was actually the number one tight end recruit in Kansas coming out of high school. Uh, he was officially given a two star by some sites. He spent his freshman season at OSU this past season where he redshirted before transferring to KU. And that's an interesting one because. He is originally from Overland Park and went to Blue Valley Northwest. So kind of uh, another guy that you can add in and say, I mean, I know he didn't obviously originally go to Kansas, but a guy that is coming back closer to home. And obviously Kansas has, has put a pretty pretty big emphasis on getting some guys from the in-state. Like we talked about Calvin Clements, who KU flipped from Baylor. We talked about Jaden Ham, who flipped from Arkansas. Two lo- more local guys that flipped to come to Kansas. Bullberger is another one that you could maybe throw into that throw into that uh, pool as well of a guy who obviously didn't go to Kansas out of high school but decided to come back, right? So pretty good pickup there. And Kansas really starting to add to their tight end room significantly. I mean, Jaden Ham is another guy who is a tight end. So the tight end room continues to grow. And I think maybe you might have to start asking the question, is Kansas tight end you? Is Kansas tight end you? Listen, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying they are, but I'm just saying maybe you might have to start asking that question. Might have to start asking that question. So we'll see how he pans out. And, yeah, just a quick recap of some of the other guys what we've talked about with Kansas. Calvin Clements and Jaden Ham, two high school guys that they flipped, uh, again, demonstrating that commitment to recruiting in-state and around the Lawrence area, keeping guys closer to home. They brought in a couple D linemen from Minnesota, Gage Keys and Austin Booker. Also brought in uh, the guy from Colorado State, Devin Phillips, to add to their D line, which – Makes a lot of sense. You're losing a lot of your interior line, especially. And 
this was a position that was probably already going to be a position of emphasis in the transfer portal and just recruiting-wise already, given how many seniors they had leaving. But then with the announcement of Lonnie Phelps also departing for the NFL draft, I think that probably made the staff even more put an emphasis on on this position. So got a couple guys from Minnesota. They also got uh, Patrick Joyner Jr. from uh, Utah State, a guy who was at Miami. And now went to Utah State and then came to Kansas. In their secondary, they added Darius uh, McGee, the guy from LSU. Offensively, the probably the, the biggest get was Logan Brown, number one ranked offensive lineman in the portal, uh, a former five-star guy that was at Wisconsin. He's the guy that you expect to be a starter probably. They just recently added Dylan McDuffie, who we talked about yesterday, Spencer Lavelle, for offensive lineman from Cal. And then also the two kickers they added, Seth Keller and Charlie Weinrich. So you figure that area will be shored up in 2023. You hope the special teams will be a little better in 2023. So that's kind of just a quick recap of the transfer portal for Kansas. Again, they just they just kind of put a bow on it now. And uh, I think the official signing day is coming up in February for some of these guys. Most of these guys have already signed and are already good to go. Some of them have already been enrolled for the spring semester, so get them in a little bit earlier and get them into the weight room and whatnot. So an exciting time for Kansas. And I think I think overall you'd have to say that Kansas came out of the transfer portal window pretty good. They got some pieces that could be really influential for them right away. There are definitely some questions still, I think, about the D-line, especially with Lonnie Phelps being gone. But still overall, I would say a pretty good period for, for Kansas football. So that's kind of a recap. We're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, David Lesky of Inside the Crown will join the show to talk some Royals. They made some offseason moves recently, so we'll hear from David about that. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN and streaming at KLWN.com and on the KLWN app. Depend on it. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson is out today. And the Royals have made uh, a series of interesting moves recently. So we have brought on our resident Royals expert from inside the crown, Mr. David Lesky. David, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. So as I said, the Royals have made a couple of interesting moves. I want to start with uh, the Michael A. Taylor trade. What were your thoughts on that and the package that the Royals are getting back for, for sending Michael A. Taylor to the, to the Minnesota Twins? I thought they did well. Um, I, I think that when you, you look at Michael A. Taylor, he's, he's not a player without value, of course. Um, really good defender. He had his moments offensively last year, uh, tailed off a little bit. And, and, and people have forgotten this, but he hurt himself pitching. Um, and, and from that point forward, he was kind of the same guy he was in 2021 offensively. But he's still, still a really good defender. Um, I, I think with the makeup of this team, almost as important as who they got back is who they're opening playing time for. And so part of the return has to be the calculus that Kyle Isbell and Drew Waters get to play center field more often than they were going to. So that, that, that's a big return. But also I think Evan Siska seems to be a big league reliever I mean, maybe by opening day, even. I think that he's just about ready, if not ready. Um, uh, Stephen Cruz, 
probably needs a little work. What with the command issues that he has, and just isn't a strike thrower necessarily either. But he is so nasty from the left side with, with such a weird arm angle that I, I think I think he can have success right away. Um, ultimately, they got depth back, and and that's something that and same thing with with the monitor deal that we'll get to. Um, they are building a very large group of potential relievers that. Uh, they, they can do a lot of mixing and matching game to game, series to series, as far as up and down. Um, they've got, I think it's, I think I counted 23 pitchers who could be on the opening day roster out of the bullpen. Um, 17 of them have options. <laughs> so, so the, you, you might, you might see guys going back and forth. And I, and I think for Michael A. Taylor to get two live arms like that, who can really be an impact in a bullpen um, or can, can impact a bullpen. I don't know if they're impact pitchers necessarily themselves, but, they can they can play a big part. I think that's a really good return. Michael A. Taylor was a guy who was sort of a hot topic at the trade deadline during the season. Do you think they could have gotten more for him then, or or what's kind of your view on that on trading him now versus what they maybe could have gotten at the at the trade deadline? Yeah. So so what I was told, um, and obviously this is all based on personal opinion. The Royals believe the best offer they got was for a starting pitcher. Um, who I don't know if he has prospect eligibility, but was once a top prospect and no longer is. Um, he ended up getting traded. I, it was Tucker Davidson from the Braves. Um, he went to the Angels in the, um, oh, who did he, I think it was the Rafael Iglesias deal. Anyway, some people I've talked to believe that's the best offer they received. Uh, there could have been an offer that I maybe thought was better, um, but they didn't. But if that's the case, I think they did better than, than a 26-year-old who – just isn't good. Uh, <laughs> and look, maybe maybe Sisk won't be good either. Maybe maybe Cruz won't ever be good. But I think they at least got the ups- more upside in this deal for Taylor. So I think they did well by waiting. Um, you know, it, it's a risk. It, it's always a risk. He could have gotten hurt. He could have struggled. He did struggle offensively down the stretch. Um, I mean, the Royals were in a pretty clear position that I think teams knew they were shopping Michael A. Taylor just because of what they had behind him. Um, but I, I think they did better than they would have done based on what I've heard at the deadline. Does it say anything that they were comfortable with giving him to a team in the division, or do you think that matters at all in this discussion? Um, I actually think it's a really good thing. It's a good sign. I, I don't know if it means a ton because he's only got one year left and because he's a role player, he's not a, not a star. But I, I appreciate the fact that J.J. Piccolo looks at that and says, I don't care that we're trading with the Twins, I want the best possible package. Because, ultimately, who cares? I mean, <laughs> oh, what, what does it matter if Michael A. Taylor hits a home run in a big game and, and wins, wins a game for the Twins against the Royals? Who cares? They're not going to win 23 anyway. Um, and even if they were, you get the player back you want. What is it? You know, great. If, if Evan Fisk is getting a, a big strikeout in the sixth inning in 2025 in a game that clinches the division, or, you know, whatever it is, do you really care that Michael A. Taylor hit well against you as a member of the Twins? <laughs> just, I, I appreciate actually that he, that JJ Piccolo said, I don't, I don't care who we're trading him to. I think that that's, that's kind of a big stride for the Royals. They, they think about things that aren't as important as, they think things are more important than most teams do a lot of the time. Um, and this is one of those situations that it feels like they took a step. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you were if you were a GM, would you be comfortable trading a player in your own division like that? Absolutely. And if, if the best return comes from the division, yes, 100%. Um, yeah, I think if returns are equal, 
yeah, I'd probably trade him out of the division. Um, but also, the, the schedule changes things a little bit now because you play every team. Um, you play the division teams, I think it's 14 times each now, where it was 19 before. So it's five fewer games, two fewer series. Um, but, I mean, still, it's, it's a lot of games. Um, yeah, I, I would... It, it, I would trade any player for the best possible package, no matter what team it came from. So Michael A. Taylor hasn't just been the only guy that the Royals have shipped off recently. Also traded Alberto Mondesi to the Red Sox. What did you think of the return for that? And do you feel like maybe this was just more of a punting on Mondesi totally, or, or what did you think of that trade when they decided to make that move? Personally, if I'm trading a guy like Mondesi, I am trading for lower-level miners' upside. Um, and I think with a trade like that, you run the risk of trading him for somebody you never hear of again. Um, and I think it's okay because Mondesi, you know, it's, it's interesting. Mondesi's value, um, I think, by appearances, is way higher than it was in reality. Um, I mean, you've got a guy who has one year of control left, so you don't even get a lot of him, who has not hit well when he's been on the field and has barely been on the field. I know that he's electric. I know that when he gets on first base, there's a good chance he's on third base in two pitches. Um, he hit a ball 450 feet. He can score from first on a on a well placed single. I mean, the, the things he can do, very not not many players can do what he can do. The problem is he doesn't do them enough. <laughs> and 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 so what ends up happening is the value goes down, and it goes down every every time every. Every week that he has less of team control, the value is less and less. And with one year, what are you going to get for the guy? Um, I think as far as value is concerned, Josh Taylor, probably right, the right value for Mondesi. He's a lefty reliever. He missed all of last year with a back injury. But he was pretty darn good in 2021, last time he pitched. And he was good in 2019 also. Uh, 2020, he struggled, but it was a really small sample. I mean, even smaller than most guys. because He threw eight, I think eight and two-thirds innings, something like that. So, He's been a good reliever. He gets a lot of swings and misses with a slider. Um, I think he's a good, he's a solid pitcher who can help a bullpen. But um, like I said, I would have gone a different route, but I think the value they got made sense. Do you think the fact that the Royals have a couple of different young guys playing in that middle infield area or playing at third base, do you think that influence it is of, hey, we want to get some of these other younger guys who maybe are healthy or can play? Do you think that influenced at all the decision to move on? I think so. Um, I mean, they, they want to look at Bobby Witt Jr. at shortstop. And, and, and I think, yeah, I, you know, they, they talk about, oh, Witt's our shortstop. He's going to be there for the long term. I don't know that he will be. And I think that they need to get as much of a look without anybody breathing down his neck as they can. Because Michael Garcia is a guy they like a lot. Um, I've, I've heard him described to me as Tim Anderson with plate discipline. Um, he's a good defender. Got, he got a little pop. I don't think he has as much power as Anderson, but he really good bat the ball skills. I, I, I think there's a lot to like about Michael Garcia. I don't know that he fits at third. I think that if he's on the field, Bobby Witt Jr. is at third and Garcia is at shortstop. And, and, and I think I think the Royals, whether they want to admit it or not, I think deep down they believe that too. So I believe they wanted to get Witt at shortstop from opening day to be able to say, okay, it's July 1st, and this, he's still struggling defensively because he was horrible defensively, by, at least by the numbers. There were times that he looked great at shortstop, but there were times he looked lost. 
But I think if, if it gets to midseason and he's still struggling, I think they kick him over to third and bring up Garcia, and that's your left side of the infield in their mind for the next five years. So I think that, was, that played a big part of it, yeah. You mentioned the, the pitching staff that the Royals have kind of been accumulating. What about Zach Grinke? Where, where, do, where do things stand between the Royals and Zach Grinke right now in your eyes? Well, I, I think that it was – I mean, it's, it's been a money issue all along. Grinke wants more than the Royals want to pay him. And I don't think it's a cheap thing. Um, I've written about this a little bit, but Zach Grinke had the lowest strikeout rate of any pitcher with 40 or more innings in 2022. Um, he had a 3.68 ERA. He was – the results were very good. Um, the way he got there wasn't, wasn't terribly convincing, in my opinion. And, and I think the Royals are right to say, hey, I know what you did. We appreciate it. Um, you're Zach Greinke, so obviously we love you. But, <laughs> you know, it, 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 we want to pay you for what you're going to do, not what you did, which is not always the way it works in free agency. Everybody understands that. Um, and so I think there was a little bit of a gap. But where they are now, they're about $77 million, and including the oldest Chapman deal, which is not official yet. Um, and J.J. Piccolo yesterday said they want him to be around 85 to 90. I, I can't imagine Zachary he gets more than $13 million, which is what he got last season. And they have about $13 million. So I think, I think it's pretty easy to see, okay, they've got the money now because they've made a couple of trades that they're willing to go to. I don't think he gets $13 million. Um, so my guess, I wouldn't surprise me if, I mean, at any moment, I think we can get the news they signed Zach Greinke because I think it's back on. I think it's going to happen. Could be today. Could be Friday. Could be, I don't know. I, I do find it interesting. He did sign his extension on January 26th in 2000. What year was that? 2008. So hey, maybe they bring him back on January 26th also. And you alluded to that signing of Eraldis Chapman. What do you make of that decision? What do you make of that move by the rules? Uh, there's two sides to it, right? It, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a it's a tough move. it's a tough conversation, certainly. Yeah, I mean, there's a baseball move, and from a baseball perspective, I totally get it. Um, I've been told that the Royals think there's a mechanical flaw they can fix. Um, they have a brand new pitching instruction staff at the big league level. I, at this point, they, we have no reason not to trust them. Um, nobody actually knows if they're good or bad. They've been, you know, guys like. Zach Bove and Brian Sweeney, the pitching coach, um, they've been good at previous stops, so you have to assume they can be good and, and assume that when they say they can fix the guy, they can fix the guy. Um, so from that perspective, for three-ish million dollars, it's, not, it's a very reasonable risk to bring in somebody who can hit 100 from the left side who is as accomplished as Rolf Chapman. But there's then the off the field. <laughs> and, you know, the, the domestic violence suspension, and you fire a gun eight times, uh, it's, you know, I, I know he wasn't convicted or found guilty or whatever, but the league found him guilty. Um, different, different burden of proof on that, and I, and I think that that's a big issue. And, and even if you want to look past that, which I don't want to, but if you say I, I don't care, he wasn't found guilty. I mean, I, it's your opinion, whatever. He he walked out on his team last year. I mean, he he was he he just missed a mandatory workout before the playoffs. He, he, uh, maybe he wouldn't have been on the roster. Maybe I don't know. He chose to keep himself off that roster. He chose to not be there with his team. And that's a terrible example for a young staff. I, I just don't, 
I I think I understand the baseball the baseball risk being a good risk. I just don't think it's a good enough risk to outweigh the other stuff. So I don't I don't like the move. Um, having said that, I think there's every chance in the world he's got 25 saves by July 15th and gets traded. So <laughs> it, it could end up working out for the Royals. I just don't like it. Okay, so overall, uh, as of July or as of excuse me, as of January 25th today, 2023. What grade would you give this Royals front office so far for the offseason? That's an interesting question um, because, and this is, I, I hate to do this. I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to give you an answer, I promise. But <laughs> they haven't done much. Um, they've cleared space, basically, is what they've done. They've brought in a cut, Yarborough, Lyles. This guy's, it, it's fine. It, it, it's getting innings, all that stuff. They have taken this off season and said, we're going to evaluate what we have. We are going to figure out exactly what we have moving forward, what we need moving forward, and, and then we'll have an answer. And we'll actually be able to take that next step. So, if assuming that they actually do take that next step and they find out, okay, we need this, we need that, and they go get it between now and the start of 2024, I would give this off season a B, C, C plus, B minus. Because it's been, I think it's been fine. Especially the last couple of days have really helped. Um, but <laughs> if if they don't, if they don't do anything, if they have another off season like this one, then this was a waste of time, and they should have done more because the free agent pool was much better this year than it will be next year. Um, I think the trade market it has has a chance to be better this year than it will be next year. It it it, it, will, it will feel like. A massive fumbled opportunity for what they did this offseason. So if they don't do something to improve between now and next season, then I'm going to have to go back and retroactively give it an F. Um, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I think they will. I think they'll spend. I think they'll do what they need to do to fill in the holes that they, that they determined they have this year. And so, yeah, I'll go C plus B minus, but I reserve the right to change that next year. <laughs> All right. He is David Lesky. You can find him on Inside the Crown, always giving great Royals content. David, Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, baseball season's right on the corner. You'll be back on uh, more regularly for us. I can't wait. Thanks, Nick. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, that was David Lesky of Inside the Crown joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. One hour down coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, some Chiefs talk. We got some audio from Andy Reid, and also, hey, what's going on over there? Patrick Reid versus Roy McIlroy at 440. Stick around for that. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson out sick today. Hopefully he'll be back tomorrow. He's kind of losing his voice. I think he might have lost his voice entirely today. So he's out, and hopefully he'll be back tomorrow. Coming up at the 5 o'clock hour, we've got some uh, Big 12 basketball discussion, some KU basketball discussion as well, and RCSD replay with David Lesky, who joined us earlier in the show. If you missed that, you can look forward to that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour as well. But right now, we have another edition of Hey, what's going on over there? Here we go. Hey, what's going on over there? Patrick Reed versus Rory McElroy edition. Oh yeah, this is a good one. So Rory McElroy, currently the world's number one golfer, he kind of he took a break from competition from golf uh, towards the end of 2022. He's returned for the Dubai Classic to begin at 2023. 
McElroy said the break gave him an opportunity to recharge and reset and to try to start 2023 with renewed optimism. Ah, yes, renewed optimism. What everyone hopes to start the new year with. Well, that renewed optimism kind of came to a screeching halt. Because earlier this week, Roy McElroy at the driving range ahead of the Dubai Desert Classic. Practicing, you know, getting back in the groove. Obviously, he hasn't, hasn't competed in a while. I think since November 2022 was his last, uh, last competition. When he is approached by Patrick Reed. But McElroy had no interest in chatting. It's from an ESPN story. Quote from McElroy. Quote, Patrick came up to say hello, and I didn't really want him to. McElroy said Wednesday. Well, there's a video of this, and the video shows that McElroy appears to snub Reed as he extends his hand for a handshake or some sort of friendly gesture. But then, as Reed turns away, he appears to spike a golf tee towards McElroy's feet as a sign of disgust. Ah, spike a tee at your feet. McElroy says, quote, apparently that's what happened. And then here is the real interesting quote from McElroy from yesterday. Quote, and if the roles were reversed and I'd have thrown that T at him, I'd be expecting him to file a lawsuit. End quote. A lawsuit? What? You might be asking yourself, what can he possibly mean by that? And why was he snubbing Patrick Reed, who seemingly was trying to offer a friendly gesture of a handshake at the driving range? Well, you may recall that golf and the PGA were rocked in 2022 by the emergence of Live Golf, who began offering PGA golfers ludicrous money to join the Live Golf Tour and leave the PGA. And this was the result of this was. A lot of outspoken opinions on both sides about the integrity of golf, about uh, the PGA, this, that, and the other. Well, one golfer who joined Live is Patrick Reed. Roy McIlroy stayed with the PGA and had been pretty outspoken about uh, some of his opinions about the development of Live. So in 2022, with the split, many golfers on both sides voiced their opinions, like like McIlroy did. So much so that in August, and, and it wasn't just golfers, it was news outlets, news channels, different, all kinds of, everybody had an opinion on the, on this, this sort of, this dynamic of live golf versus PGA. So much so that in August of 2022, so last August, Patrick Reed and his lawyers sued various personalities of the golf channel and the news outlet Golf Week. Sued them for what? Well, let me tell you. This is from a USA Today sports story back when this happened. Quote, the lawsuit originally filed in originally filed August 16th in a federal court in Texas and now in Florida alleges conspiracy, defamation, injurious falsehood and torturous interference and that the defenders have acted in concert as joint tortfeasors. That's some pretty strong allegations. This is from Reed's lawyers. 
during, uh, in the process of filing a lawsuit. This is from Patrick Reed's lawyers. Quote, the PGA Tour and its partner, quote-unquote, NBC's Golf Channel's mission is to destroy a top Live Golf Tour player, his family, as well as all of the Live Golf players, to further their agenda and alleged collaborative efforts to destroy the new Live Golf Tour, said Reed's attorney, Larry Clayman, via news release. Here's more from Larry Clayman. Quote, As alleged in the complaint, these calculated malicious attacks have created hate, aided and abetted a hostile workplace environment, and have caused substantial financial and emotional damage and harm to Mr. Reed and his family. End quote. Now, for people more familiar with golf, you already know that Patrick Reed has sort of been a, a, a incendiary figure for a while, even before the, all the lift stuff in in the PGA. He's already been. He was already kind of a guy that generally drew some strong emotions out of people, regardless. But this is pretty extreme. So the lawsuit basically is alleging that the PGA Tour. NBC's Golf Channel and also Golf Week, who is involved in the lawsuit, have conspired to publicly defame and attempt to destroy Live Golf in an effort, uh, in an effort basically to save themselves, essentially. So the PGA Tour is, you know, done its own thing, and here comes this rival Live Golf Tour, and. PGA says, wait a minute, this is bad. We can't have these guys compete with us. So, Larry Clayman reads Reed's attorney is alleging that the PGA Tour, NBC's Golf Channel, and they actually even uh, have specific columnists included in the suit saying that they, this is a calculated, malicious attack in an attempt to create a hostile workplace environment and substantially damage Live Golf, and in this case, the suit alleges Patrick Reed himself substantial financial and emotional damage via this lawsuit. This was filed back in August. And you're thinking, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what exactly does this have to do with Royal McElroy? I mean, I, really, Roy McElroy, again, was pretty outspoken. He, he's not a fan of Live Golf. But, I mean, would he really take it that personally that that he would snub Patrick Reed in a friendly handshake? Oh, there's more. Patrick Reed's lawyers also subpoenaed McElroy himself on Christmas Eve. Yes, on Christmas Eve, Reed's lawyers issued a subpoena to McElroy from the USA Today Sports Story. This is from McElroy. Quote, Of course, I'm trying to have a nice time with my family and someone shows up on your doorstep and delivers that? You're not going to take that well. End quote. Oh, boy. On Christmas Eve, Roy McElroy, trying to enjoy some nice family time, gets served up with a subpoena in a lawsuit filed by Patrick Reed against various people and organizations affiliated with PGA claiming that he has suffered substantial financial and emotional damage from public statements made by these people, including McElroy. 
starts to make a little bit more sense. Here's a little bit more from McElroy. McElroy, quote, So again, I'm living in reality. I don't know where he's living. If I were in his shoes, I wouldn't expect a hello or a handshake. End quote. So now it starts to all make sense. Patrick Reed attempting to play the victim here of getting snubbed by a handshake in Dubai when it turns out that he had sent his lawyers to issue a subpoena to Roy McElroy on Christmas Eve of all days. Okay? So it's one thing if you're going to issue a subpoena to McElroy. Fine. Sure. Whatever. McElroy, as I said, he has been very outspoken with his uh, with his opinions about live golf. Most of them not positive. He, of course, stuck with the PGA. So if you want to issue a subpoena to him via this lawsuit, sure. Go ahead. But to do it on Christmas Eve of all days. Ah, man. That's tough. It's hard to... It's hard to to be sympathetic to a guy that that does that. So Rory McElroy, naturally, not pleased. Well, Patrick Reed, he fired back. This is from the Golf Channel, which is included in the lawsuit, by the way. Quote from Patrick Reed. Patrick Reed says, quote, Rory just looked down there and was messing with his track man, which is a, a golf thing, and kind of decided to ignore us, Reed said, according to Golf Digest. Quote, we all knew where it came from, being a part of Live. Since my tees are Team Aces Live tees, I flicked him one. It was kind of a funny shot back. Funny how a small little flick has turned into basically me stabbing him and throwing a tee at him. End quote. So now Patrick Reed's trying to downplay that he supposedly spiked a tee in disgust at McElroy into, oh, it was just a little friendly joke. I, you know, I was trying to give him a live golf tee since he doesn't like live. So I think the question here is, who's in whose head at this point? Is McElroy in Reed's head or is Reed in McElroy's head? It's hard to say. These are two guys that clearly don't have a lot of love lost for each other. That's for sure. So Reed tries to go up and interact with McElroy. Attempts to shake his hand. You could again if you if you want. There is video of this. If you want to find video, you could probably find it on Twitter. That's where I found it. And in the video, it it, it, it would appear as though McElroy is basically minding his own business. On the, on the driving range. And in this snippet of video, Reed approaches McElroy, attempts to extend his hand for a handshake. McElroy doesn't really respond or reciprocate in any way. And so Reed then turns around, and as he turns around, he turns and, uh, again, it's a, open to interpretation, uh, turns and tosses or spikes or flicks, as he claims, a live golf tee towards McElroy. McElroy claims that he didn't he didn't feel anything, he didn't see anything in relating relating to the tee. So basically McElroy was, you know, not interested, he looked away. He didn't even know that there was a tee flicked at him or thrown at him or as Reed describes, stabbing him and throwing a tee at him. Okay? 
There's a little, there's even more from Patrick Reed. Quote, this is from Patrick Reed. Quote, he saw me and he decided not to react. It's unfortunate because we've always had a good relationship. But it's one of those things, if you're going to act like an immature little child, then you might as well be treated like one. End quote. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> now, I think this comes down to, would you describe filing a lawsuit and sending your lawyers to another man's house to subpoena him on Christmas Eve? Do you? Would you believe that that qualifies as... And as acting like an immature little child. If you think so, then it's Reed that really started this whole thing, is it not? I'm also curious about the, we've always had a good relationship. It doesn't sound like you've always had a good relationship. Seems like there's, this is a <laughs> kind of the, the tip of the iceberg of some dislike. Has the relationship always been good? Or did you just think it was good? And also, why would you think that it would continue to be good if you subpoenaed him on Christmas Eve? A lot of questions. A lot of questions I have about that one. A little bit more from McElroy. When asked in his press conference if he could ever see mending his relationship with Reed, with whom he has battled in the Ryder Cup and the Masters, McElroy said nothing. Now, at, this pre at the press conference, they have a media center transcriptionist. In the story, it says, the media center transcriptionist simply noted, quote, incredulous facial expression, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> incredulous facial expression. And again, if you want, you could probably find the, there's video of that too. You could find the video of his face. He, he literally didn't respond. And it's like, if somebody says, hey, there's this guy you don't like. Do you see any path to mending that relationship? What's worse? Is it worse if you just flat out say, nah, I don't like him? Or is it even worse if you don't say anything and you just make a, an, a quote, incredulous facial expression? Which is worse? Which is worse? You just say, "No, no, I don't, I don't, I don't like that guy. <laughs> I don't ever see, I don't ever see uh, my relationship mending with him." Is that worse, or is it worse to just say, or is it worse to just say nothing and make a incredulous facial expression? Incredulous facial expression. I don't know. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> Honestly, but that is quite the story. Hey, what's going on over there? Patrick Reed versus Rory McIlroy. You be the judge. Who is the immature little child here? Who is right? Who is wrong? Are they both wrong? Dude, if some guy served me a subpoena on Christmas Eve, I'd be pretty ticked. And I don't know that I would ever mend a relationship with that guy either. I can't really blame McElroy for that. But again, as I said, over the course of 2022, there was a lot of various back and forth publicly about the Live Golf and PGA. And as I said, a lot of guys were 
were very vocal one way or the other about their opinions of how they felt about that situation. And, and McElroy was definitely one of the more vocal guys in voicing his uh, displeasure with the situation. So this is, you know, something that was certainly been building. And then you get the lawsuit filed by Patrick Reed, which honestly, I think that's kind of soft. I, I think that's pretty soft, if you ask me. This is my opinion. I think it's a little soft. But then to, again, to sick your lawyers on the man's home on Christmas Eve. And then to expect that he would be okay with that and that he wouldn't uh, be upset. I mean, that's that's pretty shocking. That's pretty shocking. So who's the immature little child? You decide. That was another edition of, hey, what's going on over there? And this, this listen, honestly, this could be another edition later on. I mean, if there might be more to this. There might be more... But we that we might we might circle back to this in a, you know in, in a couple months or so and there might be more even more to add to this. Hey, what's going on over there? Patrick Reed versus Roy McElroy. You're on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Two hours down, one hour to go. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, some Big Twelve basketball discussion, some big some Kansas basketball discussion. I got a segment from Hawk Talk with Bill Self that I want to get to as well, where he kind of talks a lot about the, the situation in the conference and the scheduling and whatnot. Want to get to that. And also uh, our RCST replay coming up later on in the 5 o'clock hour with David Lesky, who joined us earlier in the show to talk the Kansas City Royals. So if you missed that conversation earlier in the show, we got that coming up in the RCST replay later on in the 5 o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Five o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson is out today. If you've been listening to the show the past couple days or the podcast the past couple days, you know that Derek's been battling a bit of an illness, struggling with his voice, losing his voice. So he is out today trying to rest that voice up. Hopefully he'll be back tomorrow. And wanted to give a quick update on some Big 12 action from basketball that happened last night. Some pretty interesting results really from last night. So TCU blows out OU without Eddie Lampkin. They beat them 79-52. to uh, And, it, and it, it feels like, to me, a lot of the Big 12 title race discussion has been revolving around Kansas, Kansas State, Iowa State, now even Baylor back into the discussion. But TCU is maybe playing the best basketball of anybody in the Big 12 right now over the last three or four games. And they're right there at 5-3 and three, uh, in the conference. So they are tied with now Baylor and Kansas. And in, in the conference right now, you have three teams tied at 6-2, and two, Three teams tied at five and three, and TCU may be playing the best basketball uh, of the entire Big 12 right now. And obviously, you know, playing your best basketball in January doesn't mean a whole lot, but for TCU, they're picking up some nice wins and they're blowing out some teams. And Derek and I talked about this, uh, I think, last week about how in the Big 12 right now, there's really not a lot of teams that are just getting big dominant wins over their opponents in the Big 12. I mean, you look at, it was kind of Iowa State was the only team that had really been able to do it. They beat Texas Tech by 34. Uh, They had an 11-point win also, I think, over Oklahoma maybe. Uh, But everybody else was pretty much playing their games within, you know, a couple of possessions or certainly within 10 points or so, right? And so for TCU to have a big win over, over Oklahoma like this, especially without Eddie Lampkin uh, not on the on, on the court, and obviously Derek yesterday made the argument that TCU, when they're playing at their best, is maybe the best team in the conference. Well, 
we're kind of seeing that over the past uh, couple of games for TCU. So uh, I'm really curious to see if TCU kind of butts into that Big 12 title conversation because I, I don't really feel like they've been included very much. Uh, kind of in the same line of thought as Baylor, like right, like Baylor starts zero and three, and everyone just kind of writes them off, or at least I think we, Derek and I, certainly wrote them off, and now here they are, kind of right back in it, tied with Kansas. So uh, TCU very impressive over the last couple of games. Iowa State holds on against K State, eighty to seventy six, in a tight game, and that certainly makes the top of the standings look very interesting. K State had a chance with a win on the road against Iowa State last night to really solidify themselves as the top dog in the conference. They can't do it, and now suddenly there's a three-way tie at the top of the conference. Iowa State and K-State at 6-2, and two, and Texas at 6-2 and two as well. Texas picking up the win last night against Oklahoma State. A pretty kind of a ho-hum win for Texas. They beat them 89-75. Uh, Texas's offense is usually pretty good. Their defense has struggled. Marcus Carr scored 21 points in the game for Texas to get the win over Oklahoma State. So, Texas improves to six and two, and then of course you've got TCU, Baylor, and Kansas at five and three each. So again, Emal had the chance, or K State had the chance to to get that uh, potentially a you know a multiple game lead on everybody else in the conference, but they fall on the road against Iowa State. So that keeps things pretty interesting at the top of the conference. And I want to dive a little bit deeper on Kansas State here. They got off to a hot start. They've jumped up to number five in the country. Everybody's all over on K State. Jerome Tang's the best coach of all time, apparently, but. Uh, they could still easily trip up and slide back into the middle of the conference, I think. Listen to their next three games. This is K-State's next three games. At Kansas, er, in conference, I should say. They have Florida in the Big 12 SEC Challenge. Their next three games in the conference are at Kansas versus Texas and versus TCU. If they go 1-2 and two in those games, they're pretty much going to fall back right back into the middle of the conference. I mean, if, the, if they're 1-2 and two in those next three games, that puts them at 7-4 and four at that point in the conference. So, uh, you know, that probably puts them back, like I said, in the third or fourth position. And I think that's very, very plausible, right? I mean, Texas looks like they're playing pretty well. I just talked about how TCU looks like they're maybe playing their best basketball of the entire conference right now. And certainly for K-State, rolling into Allen Fieldhouse against Kansas, you figure that's going to be a really, really tough matchup. I don't care how, how much Kansas has struggled or how much Kansas has had problems with you know their bench or their, or their bigs or whatever. If you're Kansas State, you're not just going to roll into Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse and win that game. Now, on the flip side, you know, worst-case scenario, I guess, for Kansas fans, if Kansas State does go into that game against Kansas and wins it, Suddenly they've got the sweep over Kansas. They would be 7-2 and two in the conference. And then you figure they're probably going to be feeling really, really confident coming home to play Texas and TCU uh, in consecutive games at home. So that Kansas game, I guess, could be potentially sort of a make-or-break game for Kansas State when you consider it from that standpoint is, okay, you know, if you go into Allen and you're, and you're able to beat Kansas, you get the sweep of Kansas in the regular season – then you've got a ton of confidence for Texas coming to town and for TCU. And suddenly, I guess, on the flip side of that, if you're if you're K-State and you're able to win those three games and you're sitting at 9-2 and two in the conference, then you already have a win over Texas at that point. So that would give Texas at least another loss in conference. Kansas at that point would be maybe down and out after a sweep of Kansas State, right? Like, that's going to be very tough. And we've got some audio coming up here in a few minutes from, from Bill Self, and he, he kind of talked about how Ken Palm is projecting that it's a four-way tie at 11 and seven teams. Uh, Derek and I alluded to this yesterday. Of, I don't know how the tiebreaker would work in that situation, but if one of those 11 and seven teams has a sweep or has you know multiple sweeps, I don't know if it would be your your record against the other three teams compared to everybody else's. But if one of those three, you know, if one, hypothetically, if that did happen and you have a team 
that is 11 and 7 with three other teams but maybe that 11 and 7 team has you know swept one of the teams or swept two of the teams even right like K-State's going to play Texas at home if they win that they will have a sweep over Texas too they already won on the road at Texas so I don't know if that would factor in, but certainly uh, that game against Kansas, I think, holds a lot of weight uh, in terms of the conference race for both Kansas and Kansas State, right? Because for Kansas, you're sitting at 5-3 and three in the conference. You're on a three-game losing streak in, in conference. Yeah, you've got that buffer of the, of the Kentucky game uh, that you could potentially bounce back from, but then you're right back into the gauntlet with Kansas State uh, coming to town. So for Kansas, that could be a huge game that could either vault them back into the, into the real discussion of it, or could really, really push them down deep into the conference. And some of the sports books after the loss uh, to Iowa State by K-State, they've suddenly put Kansas back as the favorite, right? And that tells you how much faith they have in Bill Self. That tells you how much faith they have in this Kansas team to figure it out, is that <laughs> the sports books are, are, are back to favoring Kansas, are making them the odds-on favorite uh, to win the Big 12. So that that's really, really telling of what, of what you can expect maybe or what people do expect from Kansas is that they're going to figure it out, right? And that's kind of what Bill Self alluded to on Hawk Talk last night, which we have a segment from that we're going to play here coming up in a few minutes. But, yeah, to me – it feels like for some of these top teams or teams that are near the top of the conference, we are going to find out over these next uh, couple weeks if they are true contenders or not. I just gave you K-State's next three games. K-State at Kansas versus Texas versus TCU. If they go 0-3 in those games, okay, I guess they were kind of a pretender, right? Or even if they go 1-2 maybe, but if they go 2-1 or even 3-0, right? And then you look at Kansas. Kansas, same deal. Kansas has Kansas State coming to town, then they go at Iowa State, and then they go and then they have Texas at home. Right, so okay, again, if you go two and one in that stretch, or even three and zero, you're like, okay, Kansas is right back near the top, right back in the in the discussion. You look at Texas. Texas has back to back games against Kansas State and Kansas. Right, again, same deal. And for Texas, they're both on the road. And Texas is kind of an interesting team in that, yeah, they're sitting at six and two, but they haven't played Kansas yet. Right, they already lost to K State, so they haven't really. Texas hasn't really entered into the more uh, difficult part of their conference schedule of playing some of those top teams uh, in conference, right? So even though they're sitting at six and two, I, I'm you know I, I don't want to just I don't want to just say that I don't want to poo poo that and say oh you know Texas is not legit or whatever. I mean going six and two to the at this point in the conference, they've certainly played some tough teams in conference, but they haven't played Kansas yet, right? And they've they've gotten off pretty easy so far in conference play. They lost at Iowa State already, uh, so they they've they they were able to win to get a win against TCU, but. They still haven't played at TCU. They still haven't played at Baylor. They still haven't played Kansas even once, right? So they've they've got a lot of tough games left in the schedule. So they're kind of in the same boat. But listen to this: Texas, their next three games in conference. So they got they're playing at at Tennessee in the Big Twelve SEC Challenge. Then they've got Baylor at home, and then like I said, those back to back consecutive games at Kansas State at Kansas. Same deal. If this team goes one and two or zero oh and three in that three game stretch. Are we are we writing off Texas at that point? I mean, if you're six and five at that point, are, are you? Uh, I don't know. It's so tough, but you kind of get the idea here. I think over these next uh, couple weeks, we're going to really truly find out who are the real contenders for the actual Big Twelve title, and who are maybe just some good teams, but not great teams that can pull off uh, the Big Twelve title run. Because a lot of these top teams are matching up against each other over the next uh, couple weeks, so I think that's a really, really interesting uh, aspect of the, of conference of the conference schedule coming up here. Is that you are going to get an idea, a little bit better of an idea of 
these top teams going up against each other uh, consecutively, right? And Kansas obviously has already felt that. I mean, when you look at Kansas's three losses to Baylor, TCU, and Kansas State, they've already felt that, and they're gonna they're gonna have another tough stretch coming up with this break in between against Kentucky. And I keep alluding to that game against Kentucky as a as a, as a quote unquote break. Boy, I don't know. I mean, you're going up against Oscar Shibwe. K.J. Adams is not playing with a lot of confidence right now. He looks kind of disengaged. He really wasn't involved against Baylor at all on the road, right? Like, that, that Kentucky game could it could make things go from bad to worse for Kansas. But I, the good news, I think, for Kansas, or, or what I expect from Kansas is, regardless of the outcome of the game against Kentucky, I, I think Kansas is going to show up for Kansas State. I don't think there's any question about that. So even if you lose to Kentucky on the road and it's four straight, I think you're going to be very much turned up for Kansas, uh, or for Kansas State, I should say, if you're, if you're Kansas. And and I think that's going to be uh, – I suspect that that is going to be a, a watershed game for the season for Kansas. Uh, if they come out and they show a lot of fight and they're able to pull off the win at home against Kansas State, I think that is something that could maybe kickstart the rest of their season. Or on the flip side is, if you're Kansas State, at that point, let's say Kansas does lose to, to Kentucky, they've lost four in a row, three in a row in conference, They're coming, and then Kansas State's coming in. If you're Kansas State, it's like almost like the final boss of defeating this team. Like here, you've, you've wounded them a little bit. They're down on their knee. The, the final boss is down on their knee. And then you are the team that's going to come in and try to basically slay them completely and really, really dash their Big 12 title hopes. So Kansas State certainly is going to be tuned up as well for that game. But but yeah, I think that could be a watershed moment for Kansas this season is that, is that K-State game. Because listen, at the end of the day, I really don't care about the Kentucky game. Like, I just don't. Like, Kentucky's not that good. It's not a Big 12 game. I just don't really care. I, I really don't. And even if Kansas loses, I, I don't think, it, you know, unless it's like a 20, 30, 40-point loss or something crazy like that, I'm just not going to read too much into it. I just I, – I, it's it's not a game that really does much for me. It's not – and because Kentucky really isn't even that good, it's not even a game that you could look back on and say, you know, oh, well, if Kentucky ends up being in, in contention for like a two-seed or even a one-seed or a three-seed and Kansas is in that same conversation, well, look, over here they had a head-to-head game. So, you know, here – you know, it's not even like it gives uh, the committee for the NCAA tournament seeding-wise – a game to look at and say, okay, well, here's two teams that are both on the two seed line or both near the one seed line. One of them got the win, one of them didn't. Right? Like, it, you, it, that's not even really a conversation because Kentucky at this point, uh, I mean, they'll be lucky to to make the tournament. I mean, I, I know they've had a bit of a resurgence. They got a big win, a resurgence. They got a big win against Tennessee, but but yeah, I mean. This game, it just doesn't do a whole lot for me, the Kansas-Kentucky game for Kansas. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's an opportunity to go on the road and get a big win to sort of right the ship, but I think Kansas is going to have that opportunity to right the ship anyway. So it just, I, I don't know. I'm just, uh, like I said, it just doesn't do a whole lot for me really, the, the, the KU-Kentucky matchup. Even if Kentucky was a lot better, I don't know that I would really be that excited for it. Again, I think... If Kentucky was a lot better, then uh, you could throw in that argument of, okay, here's a chance to get another a quad one win on the road against a team that could be seated similarly to you, and then you can go to the committee and say, hey, look, we beat these guys in their place, uh, so we should we should deserve that that sort of boon to be a higher seed. But that's not even a conversation because Kentucky, again, at this point is just – uh, they've had a resurgence, but still, I mean, they're not looking at even coming close to sniffing a top seed uh, in the – in the NCAA tournament, so it just it just doesn't do a whole lot for me. So for Kansas, uh, but 
on that note, you know, I'm coming at it from the fan perspective or from the outside perspective. Internally, the KU Kentucky game should definitely be focused on by Kansas because it is that opportunity to, to, to get right and to get things going. And certainly you would love to go into that K State game with a with a win on the road at, at Kentucky under your belt like that to sort of right the ship, right? I I mean uh, again, I, I mentioned it going into K State, going into the K State game, even if it's a loss to Kentucky and you've lost four in a row, I, I don't think that's going to weigh on Kansas too much. I mean, unless it's just an absolute beatdown, unless they just get absolutely pantsed by Kentucky uh, in Rupp, I, I don't think it's going to really affect too heavily one way or the other uh, that that sort of situation uh, with the with the Kansas State game. So. Uh, you know, it, it is what it is. But like I said, at the at the end of the day, I think my big takeaway from the the games last night with TCU, Oklahoma, K State, Iowa State, and uh, Texas and Oklahoma State. The big one, obviously, being K State, Iowa State. Iowa State gets the win. That that win by Iowa State makes the situation at the top of the conference very very interesting. Not that it wouldn't be interesting if Kansas State had one, but Kansas State would maybe almost kind of have a stranglehold at the top if they win that game at Iowa State. Uh, but they don't, right? So now you do have three teams at six and two, three teams at five and three, and I, as I just kind of outlined, you've got a lot of these teams that are going to be playing each other consecutively uh, coming up over these next couple weeks. So it's not going to be, oh, we got to go play Baylor and then we get to play Oklahoma, or we got to go play TC and then we get to play Texas Tech. No, for a lot of these teams, this is going to be their first real, really, really tough stretch. And for Kansas, maybe that does kind of help them a little bit because they've. They've already had a tough stretch, right, with these last three games, and now they have another tough three-game stretch. For some of these other teams, like a Texas that I highlighted, this will be the first time where they really, really get tested back-to-back-to-back consecutive games where they have to do a quick turnaround uh, against a really, really tough opponent. So I'll be very curious to see how that plays out for some of these top teams. And I think... Uh, two weeks from now, we might have a much clearer picture of who really is at the top and who was maybe a pretender a little bit, or who is, you know, who's going to be fading to that fourth, fifth, sixth spot in the Big Twelve, and who truly is uh, at the top in contention for the Big Twelve title. We'll take a short break right now. When we come back, as I alluded to it earlier in the segment, we're going to hear from a, a segment of Hot Talk with Bill Self uh, last night with Brian Haney, in which he talked a little bit about what I've been discussing, which is the idea of how things are going to shake out at the top of the conference. And also he gave some of his thoughts on that game against Baylor as well for Monday night as Kansas now prepares for that game against Kentucky in the Big 12 ICC Challenge. We'll take a short break. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Thanks for listening to the Best of RCST podcast. And a reminder, you can catch our show Monday through Friday from 3 to 6 live on KLWN in Lawrence, 101.7 FM, 1320 AM, or anywhere you're online at klwn.com or the KLWN app. Thanks for listening. 